Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, yesterday was a busy day in Washington, to say the least, but it was also a busy day for social media platforms. Twitter suspended President Trump's uh, Twitter feed for 12 hours required deletion of the offending tweets, and then threatened a ban. Facebook suspended the president's ability to post for 24 hours, but said nothing about a permanent ban. To get the latest on how the social media platforms are reacting to yesterday's news, we welcome Jim Anderson, CEO of Social Flow. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. So, you know, it's some pretty dramatic moves there by Facebook and Twitter. What do you make of it? Yeah, Paul, it, it is dramatic moves. I mean, in many ways, we're in unprecedented territory. I, I will say that a suspension is not yet a ban, but there there's an air of inevitability to this that I haven't seen before, where, you know, you've got a situation where the president was inciting violence, you know, that it'll be much discussed whether that was his intent or not, but certainly that was the outcome. And the social media platforms have always taken sort of refuge saying, hey, we, we are not in a position to suppress the voice of a duly elected president. But now they, they, you saw Twitter sort of move from one policy to another, say, well, the threat of violence now has caused us to view this in a different light. And that's what led to, to the suspension. And so the real question in my mind is, you know, President Trump needs to sort of back down because Twitter said, if you continue to do this, we may ban your account permanently. And when have we ever known President Trump to back down from something? Yeah, I mean, is this something that is happening because he is the outgoing president at this point, so there is less at stake? Yeah, Bonnie, without a doubt. I mean, he's got, what, 13, 12 days left in office. And it's interesting, you know, outgoing presidents, or we'll call them former presidents, traditionally in the United States have had sort of irrelevance. I mean, I don't mean that pejoratively. You know, that's sort of the nature. You retire, you become an elder statesman. Uh, you, you sort of, uh, after a while, write a book, you open a library, and that's about what you hear from former presidents. And I don't think anybody expects that from President Trump. You know, he's even uh, you know, already teased the idea that he may run again. So he, he may be a former president and a future candidate. But once he is no longer president, uh, and, and we are clearly coming up on the point where he is no longer president, you know, he's very clearly going to be treated with a different set of rules. And I think Twitter, more specifically, has been quite, quite a bit more aggressive than Facebook in saying, look, we may just ban your entire account. So, you know, I've, a lot of folks on Twitter, on social media, have been calling for Facebook and Twitter to permanently ban President Trump. And even Kara Swisher, one of the more of the New York Times, one of the more influential tech observers over the last couple of decades, has done the, the same here. What are the expectations post-January 20th that one or more of these social platforms might just, in fact, ban President Trump? Yeah, I think so. The first thing we need to do is we need to separate Twitter from Facebook. They're obviously two different companies. We tend to talk about them, say, hey, what's Twitter doing, what's Facebook doing? But but remember, you know, Facebook is, you know, sort of 20 times larger or so than Twitter in terms of market cap. I just checked this morning. Um, and Facebook has got a lot more to fear from regulation and antitrust and those kinds of things than, than Twitter does. I mean, just uh, sort of simply from, from the size and scale of their operation. You know, they're both private companies, and there's a case to be made that they can, you know, sort of choose to operate the platforms in whatever manner they see fit because it's private, you know, it's a private platform and private speech. Um, but I think Twitter is definitely being more aggressive. You know, President Trump has 89 million followers on Twitter, but to the degree he's ever had a social media superpower, it's not his ability to tweet. 
it's his ability to get the media to cover what he tweets. And so if you take that megaphone away from him, which Twitter may very well do, um, he's going to have a really steep hill to climb. Certainly, he's got many supporters, 70 plus million people voted for him. It's not that he will become you know, irrelevant, but, but you know, losing that Twitter megaphone would be a very significant blow to him. Facebook, similarly, he's got a large audience there, but he's not nearly as prolific on Facebook, and, and that doesn't seem to be able to drive the media narrative nearly as much as what he's tweeted has been able to do. What happens under a Biden presidency? Is Twitter as used? Do people still gather there to, you know, incite each other, if you like? Well, Twitter certainly will be used and people do and probably still will uh, incite on, on, on Twitter and do other things. What you won't see is President Biden, of course, tweeting like President Trump did, right? I mean, he's just a completely different uh, uh, personality president. He, he will be a user of social media, I, I'm, I'm quite certain, uh, or at least his staff will, but, but in a much less provocative way, right? He's a different kind of politician. So I, I don't suspect that we will be having many conversations about what uh, you know, President Biden tweeted this morning, like we have with President Trump. And so it's, it's just sort of going to be a much more normal or traditional, I guess I'll call it, uh, view of the presidency and, and how they conduct you know, briefings of the public. All right, Jim, thank you so much, Jim Anderson. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Jim Anderson, CEO of Social Flow, and of course, Bloomberg Media and other parts of Bloomberg works with Social Flow. That's just a disclaimer. Yeah, Paul, I mean, I've I've been pretty, you know, ignorant of Twitter over the last few days. I haven't really wanted to see the back and forth. Yeah. I mean, some of them are pretty graphic and, and pretty nasty. Yeah, it really was. And there is a you know, call for regulation, but you balance that against uh, the censorship issues. Uh, and that's kind of the challenge out there in the marketplace and for the regulators as well. Yeah. Well, this week, among other things, we had Impossible Foods deciding to cut the prices on their faux meat or fake meat products by 15%. Of course, uh, Impossible makes burger is essentially from a magic ingredient that is essentially modified yeast. Time to bring in Dennis Woodside, president of Impossible Foods. And Dennis, thank you so much for joining. It's been a busy day. I know that we just had news breaking that you now have an interim CFO as your previous uh, gentleman went to App Harvest to head up App Harvest. So I'm sure it's been a very busy few days for you. But talk to us about why you decided to reduce the price of your products by 15% at a time when it must be difficult to do that. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the price reduction is part of an ongoing uh, strategy to get down ultimately to the price of of ground beef. Uh, so you have uh, you have at the very high end, uh, products like Wagyu beef at like nine bucks a pound. We're, we're currently priced with this reduction closer to what you would pay for grass-fed. But ultimately, we need to compete with the mass of the market, which is, which is buying what's called 80-20 ground beef, and that's even lower than where we are now. Uh, so you, you should expect continuing price reductions from us over time as we get scale, and we can pass the benefits of that, that scale onto our restaurant uh, partners and onto consumers ultimately. Uh- Dennis, what's the elasticity there on the price cuts for you? It seems in this market that you've had pretty strong unit sales, perhaps strong enough that you don't need to cut prices. Give us a sense of how that dynamic is working for you guys. Yeah, yeah, you know, the market is in, it, it, the elasticity is incredibly high. The vast, vast majority of uh, of consumers purchase 
beef in the uh, three to six dollar range, and we're we're just outside that now. Uh, and we expect, uh, as I said, to get down there over time as we continue to scale our production. Uh, if you think about the, the the economies of scale, you know, you you build a plant or you uh, stand up a supply chain. The more you put through that plant, the more lines you can run, the more shifts you can run. Uh, you know, your fixed costs are just amortized over over a larger uh, revenue base. And and so we've been able to, as our as our production is scaled, as our our volume scale, we've been able to to get those economies over the last year. But we we don't see that stopping. We just see our footprint continue to continue to expand. And, and continue to uh, pass that benefit on to, on to our partners and consumers. Now, you said just at the end of last year that you were going to be doubling your R&D team over the next 12 months. Important to get into the Chinese market as well to grow your base and also keep competitors at bay like Beyond Meat and you know meat makers in other countries in the world. You've also had seven fundraising rounds. Where are you in terms of capital needs? We're we're actually uh, quite quite good right now. We raised uh, a couple hundred million uh, in in uh, May timeframe, and then several hundred million prior to that. Um, but look, you know the market that we're going after is enormous. Our our mission is to replace all animal based protein products, and that is a literally a one trillion pound market, roughly uh, four to uh, over four trillion dollars globally. And, and we're competing now in a relatively small part of it, which is primarily ground beef. We have a sausage product as well, but primarily ground beef. But we see opportunity in many other meat products. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not a surprise that, that uh, ground, uh, steak, chicken, fish, all these are interesting to us over time. For us to be competitive in those, those markets, we need to invest in R&D and, and create the same kind of wow product that we did uh, when we launched the Impossible Burger. Dennis, talk to us about kind of your distribution, direct-to-consumer versus restaurants. Where are you now? You know, where do you want to be? Where's the real growth? Talk to us about, you know, kind of your revenue uh, story. Yeah, we're in over 30,000 uh, restaurants in the U.S. We're in over 17,000 retail doors, and, and that's up from like 200 a year ago. So we made a big move into retail over the last year. But at the same time, we have a, a limited product set. We have two retail products now. Most, if you if you look at beef products, you know anybody selling beef to to a uh, to a retailer probably has 10 to 15 different SKUs. And, and we're in the process of building a a much broader portfolio to go to to expand that retail presence. So it's still even though we're we've we've got good presence, it's still pretty early days. There's well over 300,000 restaurants in the U.S. and that's just the U.S., which is less than 15% of all beef consumption. So it's very early days for the industry. Uh, you know, most of our consumers are, are the vast majority, like 90% of them, are uh, meat eaters, uh, and and they're shifting a, a, a small portion today of their meat um, meat meat eating into plant-based. Over time, that share is just going to grow and grow as they see the benefits, uh, the health mm-hmm. benefits, as well as the environmental benefits of of moving to a plant more of a plant-based meat uh, uh, diet. Dennis, in announcing this price reduction your spokesperson said that now the lowest price for your burger product is six dollars and eighty cents per pound how much of that is pure profit and how much of what people are buying is basically uh, you know helped by private equity funding uh, uh, so the economic the unit economics of the business are quite good actually and uh, it, it's not the kind of the case where this is you know we're selling at a loss um, and like I said the 
the, uh, the the growth of the business has has enabled us to to get the scale uh, in order to in order to sell product at a at a reasonable margin, but also reduce our prices. And you think about the you know the inputs that we we have to the product are are plants, and those plants are much lower cost yep. than than the animal uh, because you don't have the all of the um, labor that right. goes into raising cows, you don't have the transportation and so forth. So the unit economics are actually quite good, right. especially as you start to get to scale. Hey, Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate the update. Dennis Woodside, president of Impossible Foods based in Menlo Park, California, in continuing to grow that plant-based food business. Well, there are many questions that will need to be answered about what occurred in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Uh, Chief among them is security or lack thereof that allowed the whole event to take place to the scale at which it did. And we can maybe begin to start answering some of the uh, asking some of those questions right now with Jordan Strauss, Managing Director of Business Intelligence and Operations for Kroll, which is a division of Duff and Phelps uh, based in Philadelphia. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us here. The images we saw of the inability of the Capitol Police and the, and the D.C. police uh, to secure the Capitol grounds. And in fact, it seemed at times some of the videos suggest that they were letting them in and not even trying to stop uh, the folks that were coming into the Capitol. What do you make of all that? Thanks, Paul, and happy to be here. Look, what we saw yesterday was one of the darkest days in American history. This was predictable, it was preventable, and it represents an almost total lack of preparation. We should expect to see investigations about this for probably generations to come and changes in the near future. I will tell you, talking to our clients all over the world about contingency planning in the last 24 hours, the big takeaway here is that there just didn't seem to be any. Well, what's changed? Who's protecting the Capitol today? So... Bonnie, the Capitol Police are a very small but very elite unit that's a little bit unusual in the American law enforcement inventory. Like the Supreme Court Police, they're one of the only two law enforcement organizations that, don't, that aren't part of the executive branch. They work for the Congress. So in order to get extra help, in order to plus up, they need to get additional resources from executive branch agencies, so another branch of the government. Similarly, the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington doesn't really have jurisdiction on the Capitol grounds because it's, it's part of the federal, mm. the federal sovereign. So what's so frustrating about this, and this was work I used to do along with many, many others in government uh, that we do now uh, for our clients, you know, the Capitol is a space that's very easy to protect in the sense that we do it at least every year for the State of the Union. And there are these very complex, very well thought out plans that the federal interagency puts together for things that are called national security special events, NSSEs, the highest tier of, of, of domestic security events. So things like the UN General Assembly, a presidential inauguration, the State of the Union, sometimes the Super Bowl, right? There's a plan on the book that gets revisited uh, every time there's a new one. And I know that there's been extensive planning going on for President-elect Biden's inauguration for at least the last couple of weeks. This is something we should be good at, we should be well-practiced at, and we should be able to do in layers. And given the threat environment that existed, the known threat environment that existed going into yesterday, the fact that that didn't happen is just beyond belief. Jordan, can I just jump in and ask who gives that command because right now we've just learned that Chad Wolf is no longer in position he has resigned he was the acting homeland security director who who gives the orders and, and who who will do it now in his absence 
Shervani, that, that, that's a great question. So for things like national security special events, which this was not, uh, the Department of Homeland Security through the Secret Service is the lead coordinating agency. So, it, you know, for a planned coordinated deployment of people, like for the inauguration, it's usually going to be the Secret Service coordinating a lot of local law enforcement in the district, uh, Maryland, Virginia area, uh, and the entire sort of arsenal of federal law enforcement. Uh, I understand that the FBI and the hostage rescue team got there relatively quickly, that uh, the Metropolitan Police Department around the perimeters of the Capitol was able to use what's called an EMAC, an Emergency Management Assistance Compact, to get 200 troops from Virginia. As, as to who does this now, there has to be a, a, a cognizant official, be it the Attorney General, the FBI Director, uh, the Secret Service Director, or others, that agrees to send their people in, or a National Guard deployment, which, although it was delayed for reasons which I suspect will be investigated and will become clear uh, in the coming weeks, um, uh, work closely with, uh, again, the very elite but clearly overmatched and overwhelmed officers mm. of the Capitol Police in a situation like this. Jordan, what do you say to the argument that perhaps a the less forceful defense of the Capitol yesterday resulted in relatively fewer casualties than there might have been had they taken a much stronger stance that in fact it was you know i think there were four fatalities but it could have been so much worse is that a reasonable argument to make i don't understand why the capital was not locked down uh you know a forceful response doesn't have to look like shooting people it doesn't have to look like mass arrests if you think about these sorts of things in advance it might look like just making sure that the Capitol building is well secured, and it should be well secured because there were a ton of upgrades after the September 11th attacks, after the first Capitol Hill shooting, uh, and after the, uh, the, the the tragic shooting of Representative Scalise uh, at a softball game, making it harder to penetrate and then pushing layers of security out. It's not clear why those layers of security failed and why they weren't plussed up leading into the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to fill some of these open positions or at least designate somebody to take on their responsibilities for the next two weeks. Jordan, thank you so much for giving us those explanations. It's very important to understand the ins and outs of what actually happens. Jordan, of course, uh, Managing Director at Kroll, former White House NSC official and Director of Preparedness and Response for the National Security Division of the US DOJ. And Jordan Strauss is in Philly, which also is, you know, very, very divided right now. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I should say, was the final hurdle in counting electoral college votes last evening. I do want to mention as well that uh, the incoming uh, majority leader, Chuck Schumer, has now called for the removal of President Trump. Well, it is time to look cross-asset because as the Nasdaq rises above 2%, we also have the 10-year yield almost at 1.08%. We have a muted VIX and a dollar index that's again approaching 90. It is time to bring in Sarah Ponzak, cross-asset reporter here at Bloomberg. Sarah, what catches your eye most today as an expression of what's been happening in the country overnight? Well, it really is remarkable and it feels like you're in two different worlds. Yesterday, with the images of what we were seeing on Capitol Hill, Hill, and then you look at what was happening in markets before 4 p.m. And yes, we saw some pairing of gains in equity markets, but nothing too remarkable. We didn't even see a loss of more than 1% intraday. And, and it can seem cold, and this is also almost an extension of what we've been talking about for almost a year now with the real economy with COVID-19 and this stark differential uh, when it comes to financial markets. But when you speak with investors on why we see this disconnect, why we're not seeing 
these images really affecting investors' moods is Peter Bookvar. He's over at Bleakley Advisory. I'll read you what he said this morning. And he said it very plainly. He said, there should be no mystery as to why the markets didn't care about what happened in the Capitol yesterday. However disturbing, disgraceful, and embarrassing it was, it's because it has no bearing on the direction of the economy, earnings, and interest rates. It's that simple. And like you mentioned, you look at the 10-year this morning, just continuing its climb higher, the 10-year yield uh, this morning, still up another more than four basis points. Yeah, we're seeing the yield curve steepening, as you point out, Sarah, and that's caused a couple of strategists, uh, one at uh, Goldman Sachs and uh, and um, Jonathan Golub at Credit Suisse, to kind of upgrade their view of the big banks. Right. And uh, Jonathan Golub's view, he also upgraded his view and his year-end target for the S&P 500 from 4050 to 4200. And it was an interesting take because he has been talking about how this rotation from growth to value was possibly over, that we had seen value outperformance on a couple of solid days, That those being the days in which we got positive vaccine news when Janet Yellen was nominated to be Treasury Secretary. However, today he's overweighting cyclical assets like you mentioned uh, we see financials flying higher yet again today up more than two percent but we do see this interesting change today because you don't see this clear-cut cyclical defensive tilt yes we do see defensive equities underperforming utilities pretty much flat on the day staples your second worst performing sector however still higher at the top of the pack though you have tech and consumer discretionary mixed in with financials so after seeing tech underperformance yesterday there were many reasons floated, especially with, the, we want to call it a blue ripple, the expectations from that, whether that be the possibility of higher capital gains in corporate taxes, not that that's expected because the Democrats did take the Senate by such a such a slim, narrow margin, uh, but also just the expectations for higher rates since low rates have been such a boon for growth stocks. But today we see tech coming back in a pretty big way. The Nasdaq up more than 2% as we speak. Yeah, and we also have plenty of movement in credit markets. We have data coming in constantly showing improvement. Not so much payrolls data, though. We still have you know more than 700,000 people making first-time claims, Sarah. Right. It's a reality check. And yes, we did see initial jobless claims decline from a week earlier, but that's still a very large number, 787,000. It's, it's extremely large. We saw a negative ADP print tomorrow, of course. We will get the non-farm payrolls report the first Friday of the new year, the first payrolls report of the new year. Uh, some of those estimates have been uh, downgraded, brought lower after that ADP print that we did get. But this also is expected right now. We're seeing rising COVID cases. At least now we have seen a stimulus package passed, and, and the expectation is for more stimulus down the pipeline uh, by a matter of one trillion in total possibly but where we stand now is this was expected the data is expected to get worse it's going to be hard to watch but again i know we've discussed it so many times and we hear it again and again from investors and strategists that the market is forward looking it's looking past this and it's looking at a time when the vaccine rollout really gets going and the vaccine is a majority deployed and you have a very high savings rate and all of a sudden you have all this pent-up demand that starts being filtered through the economy. Yeah, you wonder when, you know, we see some of this, uh, you know, economic data, whether it's the, the jobless claims or consumer spending, start to cause some economists maybe to relook at some other economic forecasts. I know the Bloomberg economics folks are looking for a slight contraction uh, in the first quarter. 
Um, I wonder if there's any building concern about downside risk to some of these economic forecasts. Well, as of right now, in aggregate, I would say looking through research notes this morning from multiple different sell-side research shops and, and reading notes from economists, they're not really so focused. I mean, of course, they put out their forecasts for uh, near-term economic data, but when they look at GDP forecasts for the year, everyone's revising their GDP forecasts higher. Yeah. That due to the expectations of more fiscal stimulus, more stimulus checks coming down the pipeline in addition to the 600, it'll likely add up to 2,000 now. That's the expectation. And what that means for growth, what that means for savings, and what that means for the deployment of capital down the road and spending. So right now, if you look in aggregate for the year of 2021, and that's what markets are looking at too, we're seeing growth expectations just revised higher and higher. Yeah, it's really interesting here. I'm looking at the real GDP forecast on the uh, economic forecast, 3.9% uh, for 2021. Uh, so that's interesting how the economists are still looking for uh, growth. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We appreciate that. As always, Sarah Ponzak, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg News. As the markets, Vani, despite everything we see in the world, they continue to move higher, don't they? Yeah, I mean, as I say, you can have all the political chaos that you want, but if you have leadership or at least the promise of leadership, there isn't that much to worry about for the markets. And in a sense, if there's more stimulus coming, which is the general consensus, if it's going to be a Biden-Harris administration, then, you know, at least in the short term, that should be good for markets and corporate America. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing uh, in the markets and what we've seen really uh, since those March lows. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.